Greetings film fans and welcome to another episode of the following feature podcast. I'm your host Arthur Wilde and today we're going to go in through the latest movie news, uh, some gossip, um, some opinions maybe, and we'll be reviewing a couple of films including uh, The King of Staten Island, <laughs> The King of Staten Island, I don't know why I have trouble saying that. Uh, we'll also be looking at um, a really cool little indie film called The Vast of Night, and um, a bit of a kind of grindhouse kind of indie favourite of mine, um, the latest from Jesse V. Johnson, Debt Collectors, which is the follow-up to Debt Collect- The Debt Collector. Um, uh, it's, it's called Debt Collectors, a bit like Alien, and then you had Aliens, Debt Collector, Debt Collectors. Um, but for some reason, they've, they've actually renamed it in this country to Payback. I don't think it's even really referred to as a sequel. Um, but it is. Anyway, more about that later. Let's get on with the movie news. Okay, now first things first, the one bit of news that I've been very excited about this week. Attack the Block 2. Now, if you haven't seen it, Attack the Block came out in, I think, 2011. And it was um, a Joe Cornish film. Uh, one half of Adam and Joe, Adam Buxton, Joe Cornish. I don't know if you even know who that is, but Joe Cornish, a very well-respected um, English uh, writer and director. Um, and he made the film Attack the Block. It was kind of a, a launch pad for um, some stars in... in um, dramatic roles. Um, John Boyega, for a start, was a very unknown actor at that point, a young lad from Peckham, I believe. And um, him and uh, Jodie Whittaker, who was um, an established actress uh, doing some drama, but hadn't really kind of become the name that she is now. She's now more famously known for, um, uh, what's it called? Doctor Who. How the hell did I forget what Doctor Who was called? Anyway, um, I mean, I'm not overly keen on the, the latest um, iteration of Doctor Who, and it's not about Jodie Whittaker necessarily. I just feel like the writing doesn't really have the edge that it used to have. Um, it doesn't quite build as much tension or drama. Um, I don't know. There just doesn't seem to be enough going on there to really kind of make me excited each week for Doctor Who. But this is where she started out. Finn from Star Wars and the current Doctor Who um, played... Neighbours, basically, in this first film. Attack the Block, if you haven't seen it, is about um, a group of young lads who, you know, they're not portrayed as angels. They are, you know, um, they are what you'd probably fear walking through uh, an estate in the middle of the night. Um, just a bunch of lads on bikes that maybe they don't mean anything, any harm, but I, I've grown up on um, some rough housing estates and, and you know, no matter where you seem to live, there's always one little group of like sort of disenfranchised kids that have just got nothing going on and out of a lack of real kind of uh, prospect or kind of you know, boredom, um, they, they, they tend to kind of make a bit of a nuisance for themselves. Um, and that's exactly what these kids were in the film. They were just like a nuisance, but, you know, with a bit more of a criminal element. Um, and uh, yeah, they're, they're forced into a situation where they have to uh, hide out with um, the victim of their latest, uh, you know, behaviour. And um, and they've got to fight off these aliens, which seem to come down from, from nowhere. Um, these gorilla-type aliens with glowing teeth and the darkest black fur you've ever seen. Um, fantastic film. Really entertaining. A lot of fun. 
uh, and critically really well received as well, which I think was, was fair, really, because it's a simple premise executed very, very well. Um, some snappy dialogue, some really, really witty writing, and just a great performance from pretty much everyone in the cast. Um, yeah, a thoroughly good film. Very, very much enjoyed it. Uh, one I've come back to several times. And of course, since then, John Boyega's gone on to have a fantastic career being Finn in the Star Wars films. Jodie Whittaker, who's um, done really well in things like Broadchurch, I think she was in. Um, I haven't watched that myself. but uh, With another former Doctor Who, David Tennant. Um, yeah, she's she's done well for herself as well. But um, there's been recent talks that uh, um, John Boyega is actually keen on doing a sequel. Um, and uh, he said, it, you know, one of the deal breaks is that he would need to have his mates back. Um, so the, the original actors that worked alongside him. But uh, in Joe Cornish, the director, um, has apparently held talks with Boyega. And he mentioned this on uh, another podcast called Script Apart, uh, where he said um, they've both had ideas after the first one. Um and, you know, where they can go with it. Um, Boyega's actually come out and said, in response to, like, this kind of, like, buzz talk about it, um, Boyega said that, um, quote, I'm going to need a whole... I'm, I'm going to need the whole of London for an army on this one. So it's very promising. You know, they're talking about the possibility of doing another one. There is um, a lot of things that you can possibly do with that that um, premise as well. Um, and it sounds like the, the main thing they're looking at is the possibility of scaling it up, like a bigger invasion... Um, needing a, a bigger army um, that doesn't always work um, upscaling things uh, in a sequel and John Boyega has uh, unfortunately been in a in a sequel that didn't do too well the Pacific Rim Uprising which um, I don't know it felt a bit more like a TV movie um, when those when the Pacific Rim was uh, made um, I know Asylum I think they're called they're, they're one of these um, uh, mockbusters or you know they, they make basically films based on the current blockbusters but like really cheap versions so when pacific rim came out they made atlantic rim and um yeah it's basically uh like a student film uh with some playstation 2 graphics thrown in it's it's absolutely awful um and they've made a sequel atlantic rim 2 i haven't caught the sequel to atlantic rim yet um but i get the feeling that it's probably gonna live up to expectations more than pacific rim 2 uprising did um, and no follow John Boyega, he gives a great performance in it, but it's just a bit of a crappy script, I, th- I guess. Um, so the fact that he's looking to work on this sequel to Attack the Block, and Joe Cornish is the guy behind it, I'm much more enthusiastic about that idea. I do think that that is something that could work. And um, yeah, as soon as I hear anything more about it, if it does start to build and you know build steam and, and turn into something, then uh, I'll be sure to let you know as soon as I know any actual facts about what's happening. Now, the next film I want to talk about, some of you may have seen this, um, uh, Tyson, Mike Tyson's biopic has been something that people have been talking about making for a very long time. Uh, There was a fantastic documentary out, which I I believe you can still find on like Amazon Prime, um, which depicted his career and like sort of you know, where he came from and, and how he came to be the person that he was. Um, and it's fantastic insight. It's, it's a really amazing story. And it's, it's kind of surprising that it hasn't been made into a film already, which reminds me, it was. Um, it wasn't a famous film, but um, a fantastic uh, martial artist and action movie star, Michael Jai White, played Tyson in a biopic. It didn't have, um, I don't think it was like a huge hit worldwide. I certainly didn't see it. Um, 
it's one that I will actually keep an eye out for because I, I do like Michael Jai White and I do think Mike has a, a very interesting story as well. Mike Tyson, that is. Um, Michael, uh, Mike Jai White might have an interesting story as well. He's lived an interesting life. I don't know. We'll see. Um, but anyway, this time, um, the actor playing Mike Tyson is going to be Jamie Foxx. Uh, now, the the thing that I find most interesting about that, Mike Tyson is 53. Jamie Foxx is 52. And this is a biopic. So presumably it's going to show the beginning of his career. Mike Tyson really exploded on the scene as an 18-year-old. He was a sensational talent and an amazing prospect. Like, there was, there was nothing that had ever been like him before, and, you know, there hasn't really been anything since either. I mean, people talk about Floyd Mayweather being the greatest of all time, but, eh, you know. Mayweather's highlights don't look like Tyson's highlights. Um, I'm not even sure I've ever bothered to watch Mayweather's highlights. It's mainly just him ducking for about half an hour. But... Mike Tyson, yeah, um, what an, an amazing explosive fighter. So I just can't see how him being the physical specimen that he was as a teenager. Jamie Foxx, you know, amazing. He's done a great job getting himself into shape for this role, but he's not going to look like an 18-year-old fighting. So I'm not really sure what they're going to do. Maybe he'll play a uh, present-day Mike, and they'll have some young black actor who'll get the chance of playing him as a young man in his prime. Um, Fox has actually come out and said the technology of how I'm going to look I guarantee you people will run up at me in the street and ask for autographs and think that I'm Mike I really don't know what that means I mean um, you know he doesn't bear that much of a physical resemblance to Mike um, and you know he can get much more muscular sure but he's a year younger than Mike and as I say like he's in his 50s himself so, yeah, I just, I don't know how that's going to work. Um, you know, there's a possibility that they might use some kind of de-aging on him, but that he's still going to move like uh, a guy in his 50s that's learning how to box. Because um, as far as I know, Jamie Foxx has not been training as a boxer his entire life. And whilst he may be in fantastic physical shape and have the athletic ability to, you know, build his body up to look like uh, a professional boxer, he can't move in that way. Um, so I'm wondering whether they're going to de-age him for the younger bits or whether they're going to like sort of um, use a younger actor and then like sort of deep fake Jamie Foxx's face onto it. But then, you know, the thing about deep faking is that you're not putting Jamie Foxx's performance onto another person's face. You're just putting Jamie Foxx's face onto another person's performance. Um... Yeah, there, there's a lot of questions about this, and it's really early days. But the fact that Jamie Foxx has been getting himself into shape now, and he's physically ready to play the role, I mean, that means that things are going to be start, start moving pretty quickly. So as soon as we hear more about that, I'll let you know. But at the moment, I'm really sceptical about that. I, I, I'm not really sure how it's going to work. But, you know, the things they can do in cinema these days, who knows? Now, talk about films that are in production, because, I mean, there's not a lot going on production-wise at the moment. I mean, we're we're still neck-deep in this pandemic. Um, but of the films that are going back into production, I know I've been talking about this on the podcast the last couple of weeks, Batman and Jurassic World 3 are going to be um, two that 
are going to go back into production first in this country. Um, as the film industry, as the film industry tried to restart, we're hearing more about how that's going to work. Uh, Bryce Dallas Howard has spoken about how she's uh, found the script for Jurassic World Dominion. Jurassic World Dominion. Um, that's the name of the third film. It's got, she's described it as being awesome and exhilarating, which is hard to believe as um, these films were never really known for dialogue or even plot, really. I mean, let's be honest. What we have thus far has been throwaway blockbusters that could take a dramatic turn in the sixth film of the franchise, but I doubt it. Um, it just, you know, the Jurassic World films are about the spectacle. It's about how much can you achieve on screen that's going to make people sit back with, you know, jaws on the floor or inspiring, you know, I, I, just, I mean, I find it hard to get enthusiastic about these films because whilst, yes, they do look spectacular, they're not really as good as the original trilogy. Um, and I'm even including the quite terrible Jurassic Park 3 with a talking dinosaur. Alan! Alan! Yeah. Watch, watch it. I swear to God, there's a talking dinosaur on the plane. Uh, I think he says Alan. I'm not sure I can get that mixed up with um, Partridge. Anyway, the, the point is, um, the fact that she's saying this about the script, I think she's trying to build up a bit of kind of hype for the film because uh, she's she's a good actress um, and director herself. She did a, an episode of The, um, the Mandalorian. Um, but I don't know. I'm not that enthusiastic about it. I mean, I'll still watch it probably because I spend a lot of time in the cinema and when you've got an IMAX 10 minutes walk away from you and you know it's going to be a film like that that they're going to be putting on the IMAX. Um, yeah, you know, it could be a bit of fun. It's it's um, something to enjoy during my popcorn. Um, but uh, uh, the, the other one that's going into production in England, um, Batman... Peter Sarsgaard, um, who plays, I think, an attorney in this new Batman film, uh, he's been speaking about his co-star, Robert Patterson. Um, and he says, quote, He looks amazing. I have to say he really, really does. The work he was doing was really cool. I really dug his Batman, and I can't wait to see it on screen. I think he's a very interesting actor. Now, uh, you know, Peter Sarsgaard, he's, he's um, a very well-established actor, and he's, he's had a lot of critical acclaim himself, so... That coming from him, that's promising. It's it's good, and you know I do hear good things about Robert Patterson. Um, I you know people talk about him being the Twilight guy. If that's all you've ever seen of him, then you're you're missing out. He's done some uh, really fantastic films. Um, uh, recent ones like the the Lighthouse with Willem Dafoe. Um, uh, good Times as well. That's uh, quite a classic. You can find that on Netflix right now. In fact, if you've only seen Robert Pattinson in um, uh, Twilight. Or even like for his small role that he had in the Harry Potter films, I would say go on Netflix now and, and check out Good Times because you'll you'll be surprised. At the very least, you'll be surprised. But um, yeah, check it out. Um, but yeah, Peter Sarsgaard saying that he's doing a fantastic job. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, I really want to see what he does. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who have been saying this same thing about it, and and if he has a fresh take on the role, you know. They've allowed people to do so much with the Joker character, and each time it has resulted in critical acclaim and even awards. I mean, let's face it, last out of the last three people to play the Joker, I was going to say the last two. Um, yeah, uh, of the last three, two of them won Oscars. I feel bad for Jared Leto. I don't think... Um, 
I don't think his turn as the Joker was a fair one. Uh, from what I gather, almost 60% of the Joker's storyline was taken out of the Suicide Squad film. And as someone who's, who is an Oscar-winning actor himself and very committed to his roles, it's just a shame that he was so underutilised in that film. Um, I don't think he'll come back to it, um, especially as like they shelved his Joker film um, so that the, um, the recent one with Joaquin Phoenix could be made. I think that's a real shame, but of course we did get such a fantastic film that why would they bother going back and trying to fix um, you know, what is publicly perceived as a, a failure to uh, really bring that, that role to, to life in a new way or, or make it exciting again? Um, or really just to kind of emulate the success that Heath Ledger had, um, which is something that Joaquin Phoenix did manage to do. So, yeah, a weird situation. Um, uh, the other thing I've heard about the, the Batman film is um, Zoe Kravitz has been talking about how uh, many... How, well, she's been talking about how many people it takes to um, get some of the actors into their costumes. I mean, when you're playing the superhero, it's, it's not just, um, you know pair of trousers and a t-shirt there's there's lots of different parts of the costume that need to be attached in a certain way um and i can speak from experience i've i've been in films where i've had many layers of costume um and it's one of those things that if you have the slightest inkling that you need to use the bathroom in any way shape or form get ahead of that um especially if it's a situation where you can't bring costume people in there with you to help you remove stuff i've since learned that you can go to costume department and have some layers removed um and then take care of the the under layers yourself when you get to the the uh the bathroom but you know i I imagine that the batman costume is in so many different pieces um zoe kravitz talking about because she's playing catwoman in this film um how many people it takes to kind of get her in and out of her costume um and how that's going to work with social distancing. I mean, you know, chances are we're just going to be see they're going to be doing a lot of um, Bruce Wayne, Selena Kyle scenes uh, coming up to begin with. But who knows? Who knows? Maybe they've simplified the costume. You know, maybe it's just. Well, I mean, you know, judging from what um, Zoe said, it's not going to be uh, a very simple situation. But if they can get you know the testing and the isolation sorted then maybe it won't be that much of a problem to have like two or three people helping you put your costume on. You know, as I said before, if, if anyone can afford to do it, Hollywood can. But we'll see. Now, um, what else have we got in the movie news? Oh yeah, Dune. Now, I don't know if you're a fan of the uh, David Lynch film, um, his adaptation of Frank Herbert's uh, very, very popular novel. Um... And there was going to be a remake, which didn't quite happen. There's been a lot of kind of talk about what they can do with this. The, the book is very, very popular. And it's actually, um, a lot of it was the basis of, for Star Wars. Uh, it influenced that film quite heavily. Um, I mean, people have even said that um, with the latest version of Dune, what they're trying to do is uh, give people the Star Wars film that they wanted. Uh, or give them Star Wars for grown-ups. Um, because Dune is a very big book, um, and it's a very complex story with a lot of different moving parts. So it's it's been a tough one to tackle for a lot of film directors, um, and 
it seems now that they've got the right person. Denis Villeneuve, who's most famous for recently doing the uh, Blade Runner 2049 sequel, um, which I loved. A lot of people don't like it. And um, I know a lot of people just are very precious about the original, but I think what Denis did was fantastic. Absolutely. I mean, he brought the world of Blade Runner back to life in a way that wasn't um, showing off. Um, it really was in keeping with the first film. It really does work very well as a sequel. I mean, yeah, more expensive special effects, sure, but the story itself was very, very good, very gripping, very compelling, um, and you know, great performances from the likes of Ryan Gosling and Jared Leto again. Um, I do think Jared Leto is a fantastic actor. I just feel that he maybe doesn't have the best run of luck sometimes. Um, but yeah, in regards to Dune, uh, this film, uh, Denis Villeneuve is taking, he's bringing the, the, the classic novel back to life and he, his cast is a who's who of talent. I mean, seriously, um, Timothy Chalamet, Oscar Isaac, Josh Brolin, Stellan Skarsgård, Jason Momoa, Javier Bardem, and many more. I mean, he's really pulling out all the stops and every role in this film is being um, cast with great consideration and their, their use of great talent i hope will add to that i mean i can't really see much going wrong with this film and i know that's a dangerous way to to think about something like this because there's so many things that could go wrong but with such a fantastic director um at the helm uh with a great cast with great source material it seems like everything's in place for this to be a fantastic film um in fact what they're doing the story is going to be told in two parts uh, so as to not compromise on the details in the book that made it so popular. Um, but they are doing reshoots. And that's um, The reshoots are part of the first film. So their ability to schedule it during the pandemic will be pivotal in them releasing the film on December 18th as planned. Um, so far, that's still the case. That's still the, uh, the date that we're going to see it. Um, as I say, it's, it's shaping up to be a hell of a winter for films. Um, which, you know, makes sense. We've, we've had a summer of, like, blockbusters that have all been cancelled um and yeah i mean i don't know i'm kind of tempted just to buy a camper van park outside the cinema and just live there for a while just pop in every day i don't know maybe i can use their facilities for a shower that's probably not going to happen i don't think senior world do those kind of facilities but yeah um june will be coming out in december um if you've seen the the um, exclusive uh, photos from Vanity Fair, you'll see visually it's already looking beautiful. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. I mean, hopefully it will be as good as we expect. Um, time will tell. Okay, the last bit of news um, is regarding the new biopic. Yes, there is another one, because why not, hey? Um, the latest biopic's been made about Lady Di. Uh, Princess Diana um, will be played by Kristen Stewart in the film. Yeah, the biopic, which apparently is, uh, has the working title Spencer, being Diana's um, maiden name. Uh, I'm not really sure what I think about this, um, but I do have an opinion, so stay tuned. Basically, Kristen's not known for having range or being able to pull off an English accent. Um, and that may sound quite damning, but really I, I challenge you to go back and look on Kristen Stewart's career and see the variety of characters she's played. 
because variety is not the word I would use. I can't really name any of Kristen Stewart's characters so far. Um, you know, she's just basically one of those actresses that turns up and, and she's her in every film. Um, and I'm yet to see a performance that really makes me kind of go, oh, yeah, no, no she's pretty good, yeah. I mean, she's obviously also known from the Twilight films. Um, but I don't think she really kind of like stepped into any serious dramatic roles after that, that kind of let her step away from being typecast um, for just, you know, I don't, I, I don't really know. I don't really know. Everything I've seen her in, she's just like this kind of moody, frowning, you know, I don't know. There's not really a lot to her performances. I find it hard to describe her performances or break them down because she's just kind of going through the motions. Every single character she plays seems to be someone who's not very happy with the situation she's in and not very happy with the people that's around her. But I don't know if that's how the characters were written or that's just how Kristen is. Um, uh, and this is her coming off uh, the uh, recent Charlie's Angel sequel slash reboot. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a second to, to, to ask yourself, what, what are you talking about? If you didn't know this, Charlie's Angels had a film out, I think, last year, which starred Kristen Stewart. I Yeah. I mean, were there trailers for it? Did anyone talk about it? I don't know. I go to the cinema all the time. When I tell you I'm at the cinema at least two or three times a week, that's not an understatement. I mean, it is now because, you know, it's not open. But that one completely passed me by. And I'm, you know, I'm not just keeping an eye out for the good films. I'm keeping an eye out for shitty films as well. So what happened there, I don't know. Apparently it cost around 55 million and it made 73. So, yeah. It is what it is, which apparently is nothing. Um, but, yeah. The, the only story that I've heard about Kristen Stewart, um, I can't really kind of talk about what I've heard, but I worked on Huntsman Winter's War, which, as you know, is the sequel to Snow White and the Huntsman. And Snow White was played by Kristen Stewart. Uh, apparently, the producers of the film, um, the you know, there was a situation on the first film uh, where apparently Kristen Stewart may or may not have had an affair and with with one of the married men producers on the show i shouldn't really talk about it but i uh, without being able to get any real detail to the story what i could really find out on set was that she was not very well liked um she was quite you know she had a bad reputation um and it was, it was kind of a weird situation because, like, sort of, to have the actress who played Snow White upset so many people that they decide to drop Snow White from the sequel. I mean, she's still in it, kind of, but they only see the back of her, so they don't have to use, like, they don't have to explain why it's not Kristen Stewart anymore. Um, but to focus on the sidekick from the film and make a feature film out of that was was quite an unusual thing to, to be experiencing. When I was on set, I was just kind of figuring out what was going on, and yeah, I just kept hearing stories. You'd never hear the full details of what actually happened, and, and you know, uh, 
it's just one of those things where like sort of you got the opinion that if she were to step on set uh, people would be grabbing handfuls of mud to throw at her and you know that's the ones that could contain themselves so god only knows um this is turning into a whole kind of fuck christian stewart piece but i have nothing against her i've never met her i don't know what she's like i'm not a fan of her as an actress because i don't really feel that she has range and she's never really done anything that has made me kind of sit up and go yeah i appreciate what you do i think you work hard and i think you've got talent i've never ever thought that watching her so it is what it is um geez has that become my catchphrase it is what it is anyway that film's coming out. I, I, I mean, I, I loved working on Huntsman, though. Um, and I wasn't too fussed about not meeting her because I got to meet Chris Hemsworth and um, uh, Jessica Chastain as well. Uh, there was a funny moment, actually. We were on set and um, basically I... Don't go looking for me in the film. If you know what I look like, don't go looking for me in the end of um, uh, Huntsman because... My my scene was, I was playing one of the village parents. And if you've seen the film, you know that um, a lot of the children are, are taken from the local village uh, in order to be trained up as uh, potential huntsmen or huntswomen. Um, and uh, at the end of the film, spoilers, um, the huntsman manages to kill the big bad and rescue all the children who are then reunited with their parents. Um and if you watch the film, you'll see the kids go running free and uh, the two stars embrace. And that's it. That's the end of the film. Now, I was sat at the cinema with about a dozen of my friends waiting for the scene after that. Because then the film, the cameras are supposed to pan around to the courtyard gates opening up. And a procession of horses and carts and people come flooding through who are the parents of all these children. Um, and for me personally, I had this whole scene where, um, first of all, it was one of those ones where I had a lot of costume on. I had like three or four layers on. And um, yeah, that could be extremely difficult whilst I was, um, you know, if you had an emergency toilet break. Sometimes you're on set for like several hours and you don't get to just nip off and, and go to the loo. Um, and so if you've got it building up for a while and suddenly you, you get to running off to the, uh, honey wagon, so as they call it, just trying to get several layers of medieval garb off is just a, a, a nightmare. But not only that, I also had to, uh, have hair extensions put in, um, cause I had kind of a modern haircut, but I had a big bushy beard. So they, um, I had, a, a, a stylist, um, Angelo who basically would, um, he added seven layers of hair extensions to, to my hair. Um, and it looked completely natural, but it was full medieval mullet. It was amazing. It was, uh, the, the, the way he managed to match it to my natural hair color, you would not believe that I was wearing fake hair at all. It was stunning. Sometimes you work on a production that has a lot of money and you see the difference. You really do. But these hair extensions took the best part of two hours to put in. And then when we went out, we filmed this scene of the uh, village parents and the kids being reunited for 14 hours on a back lot in Pinewood. Um, it was it was a crazy long day. And I had to have, unfortunately, it was one of those situations as well, which social distancing would not allow now because Angelo had to keep coming on set and fixing my hair for me. 
plus the um, uh, costume ladies had to keep like adjusting different layers of my costume to make sure that it was all fine. Um, I had someone from the arts department making sure the amount of mud and dust and everything around my boots was, um, you know, consistent. Um, and also I had a makeup artist who was like sort of trying to put powder on my face to make sure I wasn't too shiny. Um, that's something that wouldn't happen now. But the reason why I had so much attention on me at that point was because I was one of the first village parents to run in. And I had to literally run in, um, jump over this little uh, like channel of water. Um, and my kid would come running out of the, the castle, seeing me. And there was a guy chasing him with a steady cam who would follow him into my arms. I would then pick him up and squeeze him and, and spin him round and round. And, and the, the guy with the steady cam would go around us uh, and catch, uh, catch our, our embrace, our, our reunite, our reunification, our, you know, reunion, sorry. Um, and it was an amazing scene. I felt really excited about it. I was like, oh my God, you know, this is quite a big dramatic moment, the finale of the film. And, and I'm right there. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to be center of attention for it. So I was really excited about this. I was really looking forward to kind of seeing myself on the big screen um, alongside the likes of Chris Hemsworth and Jessica Chastain, who I greatly admire. Um, and there we are. You know, I even bumped into a friend of mine in the foyer before we went in to see the film. Uh, and I said to him, like, dude, I'm in this film. And he goes, oh, my God, really? I'm, I'm going to be sat a few rows back from you. So when your scene comes up, cough. So I know to keep an eye out for you. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And as the first bit of credits came up, I was just like, <clears throat> and I kind of heard like the muttering of a voice behind me going, really? So, yeah, I mean, it was, it, was a, it was a bit of an embarrassing moment. I've learned from then, you know, see the film first and just make sure that you're actually still fucking in the thing before you start bringing all your friends and family to watch it. The worst thing is as well, like sort of, some people, some people were saying like, sort of like, um, I didn't. I didn't quite see you in the film. Um, and I, you know, which was a nice way of putting it. And I did explain to them that, like, unfortunately, it seems like I've been cut out. But the thing that really confused me was the people going like, dude, you were great. I mean, it's weird. Sometimes people are so determined to see you in a film that they spot someone they think is you. And they're like, that's totally him. That's him right there. I can tell by the fact that he's got both his legs. It's, it's a weird situation, but I have had people come to me. I've had people show me... Oh, my God. In a couple of films, I've had people show me screen grabs of me in films. And I've had to explain to them that that's just some other guy who also is human with a face. I mean, okay, sometimes, yeah, it's a, it's a, a guy with a ginger beard. And I do have a ginger beard in a lot of films, especially in these medieval films. In fact, um, King Arthur and Huntsman were, were made side by side and I was having a crazy time in my life where I was back and forth between Shepperton, Pinewood and Warner Brothers Studios making two huge blockbuster films at the same time. It was just mind-blowing for me to be um, in that kind of a situation. It's not often, uh, it doesn't often work like that but um, yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that, was a, that was an unusual film to work on. Um, as I say, I mean I was only there for a day. I had one scene to film again and it completely got cut out and it really disappointed me because so much effort was put into it and i say not just by me um by all the cast all the crew 
Um, and the amount of people that it took to make sure that I looked the part and I looked right. Um, yeah. I, the thing is, I foolishly didn't think it was worth getting a picture of me when I went for my uh, costume fitting and when I first had my hair done. And I really, really, really regret that because it's a look I haven't had since and I've never had that kind of long hair. So, yeah, it is what it is. I mean, you know, I have a great reputation for being not in um, some great, great films. Uh, Huntsman's just one of them. Um, uh, Rogue One is another one, but I'll get to that another time. That's a different different story for a different podcast. Um uh, yeah, that's really pretty much it for, for film news at the moment. Um, so let's get into our film reviews. And this week I've been watching a couple of films that have been uh, released on demand. Um, not a surprise, every film's being released on demand at the moment. But a lot of films are being pushed back so they get the cinematic release they want. Um, and a lot of times that has a lot to do with uh, Academy recognition. Because um, to be uh, considered for an Academy Award, you need to have had a cinematic release. So even films like, um, uh, what you call it, The Irishman, the Martin Scorsese one, um, to be considered for an Oscar, that had to be released at the cinema. Um, even though it was just about two weeks before it came out on Netflix. And um, I think Scorsese was a little bit annoyed at that, actually, because uh, with it being such a close release... A lot of people chose not to go to the cinema and wait for it to come out on Netflix. I was one of those people. Um, the main reason being, it's three and a half hours long. And um, if, like me, you've invested in, like, sort of a good setup at home and you've got a very big TV screen with surround sound speakers and all that jazz, um, you know, and it's a film like The Irishman, which is not exactly cinematic there are certain bits which are you know glorious as far as you know framing a, a, a you know a scene is concerned um but it's just not you know i, I go for the, the blockbusters at cinema that that's that's really something like sort of 1917 was an absolute cinematic treat i saw that at the imax and it's you know you find yourself being drawn in to what's going on you have a perspective throughout that film which makes you feel like you're part of it um and so it lends itself to cinema very well and a lot of the big like marvel films and star wars films and stuff like that they're huge cinematic visual um treats so you know like the jurassic world films that i talked about for example they could never go straight to on demand um because what part of their appeal is the scale and it's, it's kind of what they get wrong a lot of the time as well. It's like in the original Jurassic Park films, you'd get people's perspective of the dinosaurs. You'd get like sort of the view from like five foot 11 upwards um, looking up rather than just an, an eye level view of the dinosaurs, which we're kind of seeing in some of these new films. The, the perspective is kind of lost. So the ability to kind of get drawn into the film and suspend disbelief is kind of lost as well. But I digress. None of that's got anything to do with the film I'm about to review, which is The King of Staten Island. Now, The King of Staten Island um, stars uh, Pete Davidson as Scott, an unemployed stoner with a bleak outlook on life uh, that, in his mind, is a result of his firefighter dad dying in an attempt to save people in a hotel fire when the building collapsed on top of him. 
Depressed and despondent, he must face reality when his mum, played by Marisa Tomei, starts dating another firefighter. Harbouring resentment for his father's decision to have a family uh, when he was putting his life at risk, Scott sets out to destroy their relationship and save his mother from the inevitable heartache he's had to witness for many years. Uh, he even denies himself the um, companionship and, and ability or, or the possibility of finding love when his friend Kel- Kelsey, uh, who he's been having an intimate relationship with for some time, uh, you know, um, wants to take things a step further and he claims he's too broken to be anything but bad news for her. Um, but as he's forced to bond with his mum's new boyfriend, Ray, played by Bill Burr, uh, he starts to realise that he's not winning at life. Uh, and he's been hiding behind his past for too long. Um, it's been like a comfort blanket, an excuse for him not to do anything. Um, because he sees risk as something that inevitably becomes with um, failure. And failure can mean, you know, in those kind of circumstances, can mean death. So, you know, suddenly seeing his eyes, though, through the... Um, suddenly seeing his eyes? No, what am I talking about? Um, when he suddenly sees himself through the eyes of others um, and, and not hating the changes that he's experienced as, as much as he tries to, um, Scott comes to realise that the worst thing to happen to him is him. He's his own worst enemy, basically. Um, he can be better. He can be nicer. He can be focused. And he can adapt to uh, a life that's more about embracing the risks he encounters uh, rather than just hiding away from them with your head down until it's over. Basically, it's it's a bit of a kind of it's it's a kind of a coming of age film, but it's more of a kind of it's it's partially based on on uh, Pete Davidson's real life. Um, he famously lost his father in uh, the nine eleven terror attacks. Um, his dad was a firefighter, and uh, I think he went into one of the buildings and unfortunately didn't make it out, which. Um, it's a tragedy that he's really had to deal with during his life. And when he met Judd Apatow on the film uh, Trainwreck, um, they discussed it. And um, he often thought, like, what would his life have turned out? You know, how would he have turned out if he hadn't gone into comedy? Because Pete Davidson um, channeled his grief into his creativity and becoming a stand-up comedian. And he ended up as one of the... Um, regulars on Saturday Night Live, which is the uh, improv show in America, which for some reason we've never really kind of become a, f- a fan of over here. It's just improv, I don't think, has the same appeal in the UK as it does in the US. And it's still a big thing over here. And I know people that have been in improv groups, but like it's not, it's spawned more than one television show in America. Um, and I'm not getting them mixed up as sketch shows. They do sketches, but yeah, a lot of the times it is just it's improvised. Um, Pete Davidson's one of those guys. He he really kind of made a name for himself and really stood out as one of the um, the stars of that show. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, basically, this is written kind of partially based on his life, but kind of a, a sort of you know um, having a bit of artistic license with it because you know it's it's not about there isn't the links links to nine eleven as 9-11 and stuff like that. Um, but what we do actually get out of this is quite a, a, a touching and heartfelt story. Um, I expected it to be more humorous. Um, and it does have some great comedic hits. But this is uh, a lot more serious than I expected it to be. Um, and yeah, it can be bleak at times, but 
but um, there are some surprising performances. I think Pete Davidson does a, a fantastic job of playing. I mean, essentially, he's playing himself. But to convey the um, the confusion and frustration that this young lad is experiencing, um, growing up without a father and having this kind of lack of expectancy, really, because in those kind of situations um, where people don't really want to put pressure on you they they want to kind of give you a bit more of a, a bit of a break because you've had to deal with this hardship through like your whole life really um and i think it's kind of got to the point where like no one's really expecting much of him so he's not really expecting much of himself um and he's kind of got stuck in this rut of being comfortable with being a nobody and just kind of going through the motions um he has this crazy idea about having uh, a tattoo restaurant which everyone's saying to him like no one's gonna want to see that whilst they're eating their food it's just it's a bad idea but he is adamant um but it's one of those things that he talks about more than he actually like tries to achieve and uh, one of the main problems he seems to have is that like sort of he talks a big game but really he's got no prospects he's got no future sorted out and he doesn't really know what he's doing with himself and as the film progresses, you know, a few of his um, uh, assumptions are questioned, uh, especially when it comes to Ray, uh, played by Bill Burr, who does a fantastic job. Bill Burr, as you probably know, is a stand-up comedian, first and foremost, like Pete Davidson, really. Um, and Bill has done a bit of acting in the past. I mean, he's obviously he got quite famous for being in Breaking Bad. Um, but in this film, he takes a... He, he was in it more than I, I really expected him to be. Um, and he plays more of a kind of serious, dramatic role. And to be honest, he does a really good job. Um, you know, he's um, a guy whose marriage has fallen apart and he's trying to sort of uh, find himself again. Um, and he's, you know, things haven't really worked out for him. He's a bit of a deadbeat himself, if he's honest. Um, but what he finds is that through um scott um you know he's he's he has to face up to to being the man he is um and not hiding behind this facade because he's he's trying to kind of woo scott's mother by kind of being this confident in control got his shit together you know sort of guy a grown-up uh, and one with the authority to really kind of put scott in his place but Scott comes to realise that's not quite the case and, and completely dismisses him. And and they're forced into a situation where they, they have to come together um, and, you know, have some kind of epiphanies, the pair of them. And and that, to me, was the, the basis of this film. It's about these two characters really kind of discovering themselves through each other. Um, and what Scott realises that is he's been telling a story for a while um, in fact, so long that he's actually started to, to believe it himself. But what he realizes is that he, he, it's a lie. It's it's all bullshit. Um, the reason he is who he is, it's because he chooses to be, not because life has made him into this person. He's made himself into this person. His life is what he, he makes of it. And the reason why it's nothing is because he's done nothing with it. So in this situation, he needs to sort of realize exactly what, he has um and 
how he can play a bigger part in making it work. Um, and that if it fails, it's got nothing to do with his dad. It's all on him. And he finally learns to sort to, to, to grow up and, and, you know, stand on his own two feet, take responsibility. But whether or not he's going to be able to realise this in time to to really kind of stop his his dreams and his happiness from running out the door, then, you know, you'll have to watch the film and find out. But it is a fantastic film. It is, it's a lovely film. As I say, it's, it's a lot more serious and a lot more bleak at times than I was expecting it to be. But then it's, it's quite a heavy subject matter. Um, so I guess that's to be expected. Um, the next film we're reviewing is the, the Vast of Night. Now, this is the directorial debut of Andrew Patterson. Uh, it stars Sierra McCormick and Jake Horowitz as uh, Horowitz, Jake Horowitz, uh, as Faye and Everett. Um, Faye is a teenage switchboard operator and Everett is uh, the smooth-talking DJ of the local radio station uh, in this 1950s sci-fi film about the events of one night in a small town in New Mexico. Investigating a strange sound being picked up on the phone lines and on the radio waves, the two must combine their efforts to solve the mystery. Along the way, they hear the stories of townsfolk who are largely ignored and not taken seriously due to their age or to the colour of their skin, but have very useful insights and expose the pair to truths they were blissfully unaware of. As they frantically run from one side of town to the other, their efforts to find the truth and discover what's really hiding in the night sky might be successful, but at what cost? Now, this is a really nice film. Um, It's really beautifully shot. It's got a really kind of cool style to it cool style to it um it's not style of a substance though this this really does have a lot of substance to it and the two performances um from the lead actors is fantastic i've i don't know if these um if sierra or jake have um successful careers in america but this is obviously my first experience of them and the two of them knock it out of the park really uh sierra as faye um she's perfect she's so full of like life and vitality um she's she's brimming with enthusiasm and excitement um the whole world is a, a new and exciting place to her she's 16 years old and as as she's kind of coming into her adolescence she's really kind of you know full of wonder and excitement for what might come in in life and she has this um ability to use her switchboard uh, and there's these lovely long shots in the film, which you know sometimes go on for like ten minutes plus, where it just concentrates on someone doing their job, and the job she does with the switch switchboard going back and forth, it's so well executed, and it gives you a, such a great an idea of like sort of her approach to anything and everything. You learn so much about her in that 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 one scene where she's controlling the switchboard, communicating with people, trying to understand how things work, and and trying to solve a mystery whilst also trying to be a, a, a young teenage girl um, who's infatuated with this young man who, to her, is the embodiment of everything that's cool and hip with her world, you know? Um, and uh, uh, Jake, as Everett as well, as, as the DJ, he's absolutely spot on. He's He's got the kind of swagger that, you know... You, you get from like 50s teenagers um, the kind of vernacular that he uses and the way he kind of holds himself and smokes his cigarettes 
he's obviously like sort of very much into that that whole scene um of the 50s and and he's perfect as a radio dj i think he seems like a guy who's found his calling and um is in his element um yeah the both of them give uh, absolutely fantastic performances um but really it's the director that stands out in this one because some of the the shots that he uses um some of the unique ways in which he kind of you know tells his story there's one bit where um like there's a part happening on one side of town and then it has to quickly go to something that's happening on the other side of town so what they did was there's this one long shot where the camera just flows and goes straight through town and through parks and down streets and it's an amazing shot ending in Everett's character lighting a cigarette outside of the uh, radio station so it goes from the switchboard in town all the way to the radio station which I think is approximately like sort of it's a couple of miles at least. Um, and apparently the way they went about doing this was um, as the cameraman followed, uh, you know, as the cameraman came out of the um, switchboard room um, and onto the street, the camera was passed off to a young lad on a go-kart who then made his way all the way across town, filming that, ending in the camera being passed off to another cameraman who zooms in on Everett and he lights his cigarette. And apparently, um, Jake, who plays Everett, said that that was the the most stressful part of the film because it took so long for this shot to make its way all the way across town. And he was just, he had sweaty palms and he was really worried about not being able to light that cigarette on cue and do the scene and and end up ruining, like, sort of the take and spoiling everyone's time. But they do, they pull it off. They do a great job and there are many long scenes like this, but the performances are great. The dialogue is so good. There is some amazing storytelling and narrative in this film, which just is so engrossing. I mean, you really are drawn in. There's one long shot of um, a lady telling a story about her past. And it's literally one camera angle on the side of her face telling this story uninterrupted for about four or five minutes. And... You know, you've got to give it up to the actress as well. That it's a very compelling performance to be able to kind of hold your attention for that long, and to get all of that dialogue down. You know, I've I've tried in the past. I've I've done student films in the past where I'm the only person talking for like seven or eight seven or eight minutes, and it's it's a lot to take in. But then you know, I had the beauty of being able to like it was different camera angles, so we could cut it, and I could like sort of do it in chunks. And I I my hat goes off. Um, but what this film really has is a sense of, it's a great homage to films of that era. It kind of has this sort of Twilight Zone feel to it. Um, but everything about it, the camera work um, and the way it's used to uh, add pace and tension to the film, I think is is beautifully done. Um, yeah, everything about this film is fantastic. And it's a really enjoyable story with some wonderful performances. I thoroughly recommend it. It's exclusively out now on Amazon Prime. Um, and it's it's free to watch if you've got Amazon Prime. It's not. You don't have to pay to rent or anything like that. Um, not that I'm having a go at any of the other films that I'm reviewing tonight. But with that being said, I will move on to my last film. Because uh, this is one that I was personally looking forward to for a while. Um, Debt Collectors, otherwise known as Payback. Now, this is a sequel. And after being brutally gunned down in the first film, spoilers... French and Sue are very surprised to find each other alive and well. And after seeing the first film, so was I. 
To recap, French, played by Scott Atkins, was a martial arts instructor that was getting leaned on by rival schools to the point where he was struggling to keep his head above water, financially speaking. Reluctantly, he took a job collecting debts for um, a local businessman, shall we say. He wasn't exactly on the straight and narrow. His partner and mentor for his new vocation is former actor Sue, played by Louis Mandelore. Now, he has a more casual approach to his work than the ever stressed out French. The pair fight their way through various situations, discover an effectiveness to the combination of skills. In the second outing, Sue reappears with a promise of work and a way out of the dead-end situation. Having not been able to keep the school open, French is forced to put his skills to work as a heavy in a shitty little bar. But when his heavy-handed penchant for kicking people in the face is too much for the latest dive, the timing is right and he joins Sue for some more skull-cracking and quick money. But all is not as it seems, and their ability to survive the lead poisoning from the first film has irked a gangster whose brother unfortunately did not survive the same encounter. Will their last collection result in their freedom, or is that too much to ask this time round? One thing's for sure, they'll have to fight hard and fight dirty if they want to make it through this one. And trust me, that's pretty much the premise of the film. You've got a couple of guys, um, and their main job is debt collecting. They're kind of chalk and cheese. It's kind of one of those buddy cop type odd couple movies where you've got Scott Atkins playing French, who's this British martial arts instructor who, when taking the job, is instructed to like turn up wearing a suit and tie and look like he, he, he means business. And when he first meets Sue, the guy is basically a hungover wreck, uh, unshaven, and just wearing a like a Hawaiian shirt with poorly peroxide hair and, you know, not quite what he was expecting and not really in fitting with how he was expected to turn up. Um, but the two do work very well together and they do, you know, a very good job of taking people out. And these films, you know, this is what you need to understand going into these films is this isn't like an award contender in regards to the Academy and stuff like that. This is the kind of grindhouse film that you'd see. Um, it's, it's one of those films that you'd watch back to back with another action film. It's about a couple of guys against the odds trying to take down um, and numerous people. And it's, it's kind of a throwback to those kind of action films. It's kind of reminiscent of the, the kind of air of Roadhouse and films like that. In, in real life situations, there aren't that many spinning kicks. Um, real life violence isn't as well coordinated and people don't take their turn beating you up. It's it's So it's one of those things where you've got to suspend disbelief and accept this film for what it is. It's a low budget kind of B-movie action movie and it hits all of the... If you go into it expecting that kind of a film, it hits the mark so many times, you're going to absolutely love it. I'm a big fan of Jesse V. Johnson who made this film. He's got this great combination at the moment where he's working with Scott Atkins more than Tim Burton works with... Johnny Depp. Seriously, the two of them have had seven films out in the last three years. And long may it continue. I've watched every single fucking one of them. I really enjoy them. Um, uh, my favourite actually is um, Accident Man, uh, where basically uh, Scott Atkins plays a hitman whose main skill is making the hits look like an accident. And there's a lot of um, quirky kind of um, I guess you'd call it Guy Ritchie-esque kind of fast cuts and witty banter and back and forth and different overlapping stories which kind of seem to contradict each other and then come together to some, you know, great finale. 
And that's what this is as well. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of different actors. There's um, a lot of different actors. Of course, there's a lot of different actors. But there's a lot of different storylines going on. Um, but it's mainly about these two trying to complete their jobs uh, so they can make some money and get free. But what Sue hasn't really explained to French is that there's a lot going on behind the scenes which doesn't quite add up. And he hasn't been completely honest with French uh, regarding what they're doing and who they're doing it for. Um, so as the situation escalates and comes to a head, uh, there's not just the battle against their enemies, but it's the fight between the two of them. And, and they've always had this conflict between them that they've never really had to resolve. And it's only when there's an outside force working against them that they can really kind of work together. Um, but there's this comical conflict between the two of them all the way through the, these two films. Um, I really enjoyed this film. Um, I knew what I was coming, what I was expecting in this film, and I, I got exactly what I wanted from it. Um, I actually got more than I expected, actually, because um, I'm not too familiar with um, Lewis Mandalore. Um, like he really came to my attention most prominently in the first Deck Collector film. Um, in this one, he he, um, I got to know him a bit more as an actor. I feel um, there are certain performances where he describes his encounters. Um, of of dying on the operating table um, when he got shot in the first film, um, and his understanding of of what happens afterwards and how it kind of plays into the life that he's led and the person that he is. And trust me, the 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 way he delivers his dialogue, which he does throughout most of the film, a lot of the times he's getting a bit Macho Man Randy Savage a bit with his dialogue, but um, he really does knock it out of the park and. There are a few performances in this film which are above and beyond what you'd expect from like a, this kind of low-budget kind of indie film. Um, him and uh, there's another actor. You know what? I'm going to have to quickly look it up because there was a gangster in this film who, for me, he... Uh, Ski Car, he plays Molly. He delivered his dialogue with this kind of perfectly weighted gravitas that I don't think was really expected uh, for a film of this, you know, calibre. I, I, I don't mean to talk down about this film. Um, as I say, I always try to review indie films because I really appreciate the creative process and allowing artists to really express themselves. And that's done more in indie films than it is in big budget productions. Because in big budget productions, if you take a lot of money off people to make a film they expect to have a say in what the film turns out as. And a lot of times um, that really fucks a film up. Hence the fact we're getting Zack Snyder's Justice League. Um, who knows? Uh, maybe one day we'll get to see what Josh Trank's Fantastic Four would look like um, and what Lord Miller would have done with uh, Solo, the um, Han Solo prequel film. You know, film... Uh, Studios interfere a lot, and it kind of makes films turn a bit shitty. With uh, Jesse V. Johnson, I get the feeling that he's just given carte blanche, like, here's the money, we know you're going to deliver, uh, make the film you want, and get it to us in time. And I think that's pretty much the, the um, you know, what they ask of him. And he does deliver. You know, um, his last film, which came out on a, um, Netflix, Avengement, it's a great film. I really enjoy it. I've got the Blu-ray and I've, I've knocked it out a couple of times. I think it's, uh, you know, quite a classic gangster film. Again, 
low budget B movie kind of grindhouse film, um, but with some great cinematography, some really good editing, um, and some very witty dialogue. There is not a lot that you you won't enjoy about this film. For some people, if it's not your genre, yeah, okay, you're not going to enjoy it as much, and you're going to be able to pick it apart. But honestly, um, I think it's definitely worth a watch. Um, Debt Collectors 2, Debt Collectors, Payback, whatever the hell it's called. Um, I find the easiest thing to do is even look up Scott Atkins, uh, Louis Mandalore, Jesse V. Johnson, one of those people, um, and, you know, find the film through them. Um, I, it's on Chile at the moment uh, for download, um, but I believe it's going to be coming on a, a few different uh, places where you can purchase it. The um, DVD and Blu-ray will be available, I think, 6th of July. Um, via Amazon, so I'll be grabbing a copy of that, and I'll be, I'm sure be watching this again. Um, and I'm kind of like sort of you know building up my uh, Jesse V. Johnson, Scott Atkins collection now. So uh, long may that continue. I want to see more. I'm really looking forward to Accident Man too. Apparently that's in the works, and um, yeah. Um, the weird thing is, like I'd, I'd really love to actually work on one of these films. Um, there was a funny moment I was working on. Um, I sometimes work on these true crime documentaries, which you've probably seen on like this Discovery Channel or Crime Investigation. And what it has, it has like an interview with the detective and like, well, back in 1993. And then it kind of shows a flashback, like a reenactment. Um, a lot of times I'm the guy playing like sort of the detective back in 1993. Um, and it's a lot of fun. Um, extremely low budget, as you'd imagine, because it's just reenactments in a documentary. Um, but I remember one one time playing a detective and um, had this office set up and I had some files on my desk. And one of them was marked for the props department. And it just said, Avengement. And I realised that, you know, whatever this was being used for, uh, whatever documents were being stored in it, was for the film Avengement. Which meant that somehow there was some kind of crossover between the productions. I don't really know what it is or, or what it was, but I remember thinking to myself, like, yeah, very close, and hopefully one day I can get to work on a Jesse V. Johnson film. But uh, it's not very likely, because I don't think they use... Well, for a start, I don't think he films much in the UK. Um, and if he does, you know, the um, the agencies that I usually get hired through uh, are usually working with, like, big-budget studios. Um, although, saying that, I have worked on indie films before. Uh, my first film, in fact, was the... Um, the Man Who Knew Infinity, uh, which was an indie film. And I remember, uh, yeah, it, was, it starred Dev Patel and Jeremy Irons. And I remember waiting for that film to come out for like two and a half years because it was an indie film and they had to take it around the festival circuit and try to get some kind of distribution deal, which they eventually did. Um, you know, it wasn't a hugely successful film, but I learned a lot about what it's like to work on a film set and also what it takes to actually get a film released. Um, it was quite an eye-opener. But I digress. Um, Debt Collectors, The Vast of Night, and King of Staten Island, all three films are worth a watch. There's something different in each one of them. Um, you know, I, I, I want to keep it diverse. I want to kind of give you something unique and interesting to watch. I want you to watch films that you probably wouldn't normally watch. Um, so hopefully I'm delivering on that. Um, but that's pretty much it for this week, ladies and gentlemen. Um, 
Next week, I'm, I've got a couple of blockbusters to watch. Um, I say blockbusters. Um, Artemis Fowl has been released on Disney+. Plus. That was supposed to be a cinematic release, but they've just stuck it straight on their streaming service, which is, you know, Disney+, Plus. they can, they can kind of take that hit um, without having a cinematic release. Um, so, yeah. And I, I've heard terrible things. I've heard terrible things. Um, I didn't work on it. I know people that did work on it and they had, they were really, really looking forward to it coming out. And a lot of them watched it as soon as it was released. And all I'm hearing from them is like, it's, it's terrible. But, you know, this is all about my opinion here and I've got to be impartial. So I'll give it a watch this week and I'll let you know what I feel, think next week. Um, another film that I saw, seen has just dropped on Sky Movies that I didn't see at the cinema was Genomite, Gen, Gen, Gemin, Genomite? That's not a word. Gemini Man with Will Smith. Now... Mm. Again, not hearing great things about this. Um, it seems like it was uh, it was popular due to its concept, but maybe not as much time was given to the actual premise of the film. I don't know. We'll see. I haven't quite decided what my indie film's going to be. Uh, I need to find one. I'm not entirely sure. Um, I might talk about Upgrade. Because um, I mentioned it a lot with the um, after I reviewed the Invisible Man, and it's um, Lee Wannell. Wannell. It's the film that really made him. And if you haven't seen it, it's it's. I mean, it's a belter. It's a hell of a movie. So maybe that'll be next week's indie film. Who knows? Um, but if you want to give me some suggestions, if there's anything that you've caught which you you kind of think most people might have missed, and you think I should give it a look and give it a review. Give me a shout. There are loads of ways to get in contact, people. You can uh, drop a, a message on our Facebook page. Um, we have an Instagram page. And plus, most of the apps you use to listen to these things have um, the ability to message, like the host of the podcast, Podbean. If you have their app, there is a messaging service there. You can leave messages underneath, and I will read them. I will. I promise. Um, but yes, if you are continuing to listen... Um, I, I really do appreciate you. Um, I'm, I, as I said before, this is one of the main things that's keeping me sane during lockdown. Um, I don't have any filming work to do. I don't have any office work coming in either. Um, I tried to fill in an application form for Waitrose recently, and they tried to tell me that I might not have enough empathy to stack the shelves, and that maybe I wasn't enough of a team player to drive the vans. I don't really know how it works. But I guess retail is probably not the kind of work that I'm cut out for. I don't know. I'll have to make ends meet somehow. But um, yeah, at the moment, the podcast is the one thing I look forward to the most in the week. Um, so help me out, people. Um, if, you, if you're enjoying it, um, give it a, a like, give it a share, tell a friend about it. If you can get one more person to listen, you know, you might end up doubling my audience. I'm not saying there's one person listening at the moment. All right, calm down. I'm just saying, the more people, the more chance I've got of turning this into something that could, you know, be more than just a way of killing a few hours on a Sunday. I don't know. Um, but I do appreciate you. I know there's a number of people listening. Um, to that one person in Michigan, I don't know who you are, um, but I know that you're listening. And I know that you listen to every episode. And I appreciate the fuck out of you. 
So keep listening. And to everyone else around the world who's listening, um, as I say, thank you very much. Peace, love, empathy. And I will see you next week. Until then, take care, everyone, and goodbye.